Everybody okay? Some people say, can, can you do that in church? Can you do that kind of music in church? Yes. May God free us from the chains of thinking that our God saved us from hell. But yet we have to worship Him in a 100% stoic manner. May God rescue us from that. Amen? He is worthy of everything that we can give Him, not just musically, but with every aspect of our life. And everything that is done here, from the choir to the band to special music, that is done, we pray and hope, out of an overflow of what the Lord has done in our hearts. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 13. And we're going to begin there in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 9. And this is the third part in our series. Um, third part in our series on the problem of evil and the question, why does God let bad things happen? Some people have asked the question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Uh, some people have asked the question, why does uh, God uh, allow bad things to happen to good people and all sorts of uh, in-between questions. But here's something that we're going to uncover. And this is the driving thought of this message. And it comes from C.S. Lewis, who captured the thought of what Jesus is saying very well. And it's this. Pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. Let's go to the text. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says there were some present at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or... Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his garden. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure or fertilizer. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Would you pray with me? Father, this is Your Word. We believe it is absolutely true. We believe that it is from You. And it is out of love that You've given us tough, tough things to hear. You know us better than we could ever know ourselves. And You understand, Father, the great necessity of repentance in our lives. So we pray, God, for the ones that need to be broken, 
the lost church member, the person that thinks they're going to heaven when they're really not, the person has basically very little experience with Jesus at all that knows that they need to meet Him for the first time in a real way and to be saved. Then God, for the ones here who have been saved, but there has been a level of hardness or distraction that is built up on the heart, we pray, God, today You would take and strip it away and make us new. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you have seen the show Doomsday Preppers? Let me see your hand. How many of you have heard of the show Doomsday Preppers? If you have not, it is a crazy, crazy, crazy show. The show goes for these people who think that all sorts of disasters are coming. Disasters like the Russians dropping the big one. Disasters like the electrical grid going down. Disasters like the economy tanking and inflation going to hyper levels. Uh, Things like uh, biological or chemical warfare hitting in the United States and life as we know it turns into what is basically a zombie apocalypse. And it's an interview of these people, some of which have built underground bunkers to prepare for when it hits. Others have prepared insane amounts of food. Ladies, I saw one episode where this lady who could cook. She cooked, and she cooked, and she cooked, and she didn't get any help with OCD. And I'm not trying to be funny there, but she cooked and cooked, and they had literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds of jars of meat and all sorts of stuff to be prepared. And other people prepare, well, some of y'all don't prepare, you just have 5,000 guns. You know what I'm talking about? They, they arm themselves to the teeth and, you know, have their kids out and, you know, teaching them to shoot, which I think is a good thing. If you teach them about it, maybe they won't be as absolutely obsessed with it if they do nothing but play video games, but that's just a plug for normal family relations. And I'll go on to the next point. Fathers, Teach your sons to do things. Don't, don't just turn the TV on, the video game, and say have fun. Teach them how to do real life things, and God will reward you for that. But on Doomsday Preppers, there's all sorts of weird stuff going on, but I'm, I, this is just an observation that I came to. The only time that the experts gave people that I saw advice and criticism as to preparing themselves was one guy who was on an oxygen tank. Everybody else, they addressed what they had prepared, but they did not address these people that were obviously not ready to endure physical hardship on any level. And I thought of the show, I said, that is absolutely dishonest if you were telling people you were preparing for doomsday based upon what you accumulate, but you as a person are not ready to handle physical stress on any level. You can learn how to punch a punching bag, but if you don't have stamina, 30 seconds tops, and if you don't knock them out by then, you lose the fight. And I think sometimes when it comes to Christian life and preparing for tragedy, which by the way, tragedy will come in your life. Welcome to church. Good news, isn't it? Welcome to Rocky Mountain Baptist Church. Tragedy will come. But here is often how we go about, just like some of the doomsday preppers, prepping wrongly, we prepare ourselves financially. We prepare ourselves relationally. 
We have friends. We have co-workers. We have connections. But the very basic level of preparing yourself for when tragedy hits you in your family is understanding where you are with Jesus Christ. Now, for some of us, you say, Jeff, that's we know that. Do we? How is it evidenced in our lives when tragedy hits? I've been amazed. I'm only 32. And for some of your students, I know that is so ridiculously ancient. Sometimes in Sunday school, which I've had the awesome pleasure for the last few months, I'm not sure how long it's been, to be able to teach our youth Sunday school class. And I love it. I hope you all love it too, students. Okay, I'm not going to ask for an amen. That's always awkward. Like, it's good, right? It's good. It's, and it, it, sometimes they look at me, I'm like, yeah, back in the 80s, back in the 90s, they're like, I was not even an embryo then, you know? Like, I'm 32, and what I have seen in my short life is people who have been to church for years, decades, they can tell you how the stories end in the Bible. But when things happen, things that they know are going to happen, they lose their minds. This is tough. This is bad news. But every single one of you here this morning who has a parent, if you live long enough, you will see that parent pass. Some of you parents may even have experienced or will see your child pass before you do. And I think for some of us, we think that we have the Bible in our mind and our heart, but we think for some reason that because Jesus has saved our soul, that He's going to exempt us from suffering. And it's just not true. Now, I know there are some preachers that will tell you that. They will say, if you have enough faith, if you say this prayer, if you give to my ministry, then God will alleviate and exempt you from suffering. He will never allow you to get ill and to get sick. Listen, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's just not. And we spent time explaining why that's the case. And let me just go a step further. If you are here this morning saying, Jeff, I, I think it's true. God's doing a work in my heart. Man, I'm kind of new to church. I've been out for a long time. I know that I need to follow Christ. But what can I expect if I do that? You can expect, according to the Bible, more problems than you have now. But of a different sort. Now, given you may not have the level of financial problems that you have through spending, wasting money on tobacco, or it's going to be very, wasting money on tobacco, wasting money on alcohol that you don't need, wasting money, guys, on dumb things that we buy to somehow prop up our manhood in our own eyes. It's simply not there in the Bible. Those problems will alleviate themselves in time, but you find in the Bible things like Jesus is saying, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you. You guys ready to follow me? Here's the Jesus sign-up sheet. At the top it says, prepare to be misunderstood and prepare to be hated. Who's ready? Then the Bible also says, this is a, this is a common verse that we try to emphasize all the time, Rocky Mount Baptist. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. The Bible says, for all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
That means that you, when you get ready to follow Christ, you are rearranging your life to swim against the current of the world. So I'm going to try to be as loving and as honest as I can. If God moves upon you to get saved during this service and you're ready to walk down at the end in the invitation, ready to stand up for Jesus, don't do that unless you're ready to prepare for what happens. Some of you I've had this conversation with. You've spent many years away from the Lord. You've recently come to follow Him. And I usually say something very pastoral encouraging like, hey, it's awesome that you recently got saved. It's great you're getting plugged back into coming to the life of a church, coming back, attending and, and giving and being involved. But just giving you a heads up, get ready because Satan's going to try to throw a wrench into your life. He's going to try to disengage the drive shaft of your walk with Jesus. But we're here to help you. And God can give you the strength. But if you are coming to Jesus just to have a better life, it's not going to happen. Especially if we didn't live in the USA when we had freedom of religion, freedom to come here and gather. It would be much, much, much harder. So Jesus, that's exactly what He says. Notice the way He addresses this. He had two freak accidents. One, psycho, psychopath, pilot, murdered Galileans, which were freedom-loving country people. By the way, uh, some Bible scholars say this tongue-in-cheek. We think that Peter may have been a redneck. Remember what happened? He's there trying to be incognito. Act like he doesn't know Jesus. And they say, wait, wait. You are one of His disciples. No, I'm not. We know you are a Galilean by the way you talk. (laughs) Galileans had gone to sacrifice in the temple of God. They had gone to church. That's what it was in that time. To sacrifice and to obey the Bible. And Pilate, for whatever reason, sent in his troops. And this is horrific. But he murdered, we don't know how many people, in the temple. Here's the scene. We're not trying to be gory for gory's sake, but it's in the Bible. Notice, it says Pilate had mingled, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. Here's the picture. Dead animals, slaughtered animals, slaughtered people, intermingled blood. A sight of absolute and horrific carnage. Jesus addressed the situation that was on everyone's mind. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is in your outline. In order to prepare for tragedy, we have to understand that the Bible teaches that tragedies will come in a fallen, sinful world. We see the situation of moral evil, of Pilate killing these people. Also, it moves on uh, to verse number 4. And Jesus addresses this tower in an area called Siloam. It just randomly, we don't know why, but it fell... And it killed 18 people. Now, we've had a similar thing happen not too far ago here in the U.S. We had an instance of moral evil in the Boston Massacre. That was an example of moral evil. It was corrupt. It was wicked. It was sinful. It was demonic. And then we had... Something happened that, as far as we know, no one went in there and planned for that to happen. In West Texas, the explosion at the factory that killed so many people. The question on the minds of Jesus is here is the question that's on our mind. 
Why, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, did He allow these things to happen? Then notice what Jesus says in verse 3 and in verse 5. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And He prefaces that by addressing the thought that most people had, and that was that the people who died in these unusual ways had somehow done more sin than everyone else who had not died in that way. And Jesus says, no, they were not more wicked, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So something that Jesus does not do here is He does not say, Oh, my Father, how could this have happened? Notice here that Jesus is not calloused. He's not uh, Clint Eastwood to where nothing ever gets through the hardness of His heart. But Jesus is not surprised that these things happen. Obviously, Jesus knows. And I'm always curious at Christians who can't believe that situations of horrific evil happen in the world. Do you know that if you are a Christian, you are not a pessimist? You are an optimistic realist to the nth degree. And here's what I mean. You understand as a Christian what the Bible teaches about how wicked the human heart actually is, right? I mean, you really don't have to read that much of the Bible to be like, you know, I think the human race has a pretty big problem. Like G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. A letter was written to him by some young men asking what, what he thought was the problem or the source of the world's problems. And he wrote back, Sirs, I am, respectfully, G.K. Chesterton. I was coming uh, home from Roanoke the other week and, I, and it, was, it was dark and I was coming through Boone's Mill. And I, I, I was like, it's a, it's a little bit, I don't know, but it seems a little bit darker than it normally is. Maybe some street lights are out. And then as I got closer to Rocky Mount, I noticed, I said, I, I don't know, I didn't put a lot of thought into it, but maybe, I don't know, maybe the town's saving money. or it, it, just, it just looks like it's not as bright as it should be normally at night. And then as I turned on that last uh, leg to come home, I noticed someone else pull out behind me. And he had something on the top of his car that all of a sudden started making all sorts of different... Uh, wait, I'm not making all sorts of The cop pulled me over. Let's just go with that, alright? You're like, again? I'm like, yes, again. I get pulled over in Rocky Mountain. I was like, great, here we go. And uh, I don't know if I should say this. Maybe I will, Fred. Nobody will mess with me ever again. Um I was going to open the glove box to get my license and registration, but I realized I have a 357 Magnum in that bad boy. And I said, now how would that be? Pastor gets pulled over, gets shot up for going for gun. So, buddy, I, I started freaking out, man. I got a concealed permit and all that. I had both hands on the wheel. And, and he, license and registration. I said, sir. I was like, I, I, you know, I just, I, I just imagined this. I just imagined this. Hands against the car. Some of y'all driving by. Beep, beep. What's up, Pastor Jeff? So, man, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. Like, because, and by the way, by the way, maybe y'all don't know this. Maybe a law enforcement officer has never told you, but I'm going to 
relay to you what they openly relayed to me. Sometimes people who get sometimes people who get tickets don't pass the test. It's called the polite test. Some of y'all are like, oh, you should be polite. When the police pull you over, so I've got, I've got, man, it's it's like it's like eleven and one. It's not even ten and two. Like eleven, I mean, just hands right up there. And he says, "Sir, license and registration, please." And I said, "Sir, I'm a concealed permit carrier. I do not have a weapon on my person. There is one in my glove box, sir. My license or my registration is in the glove box." He said, "That's fine." I said, "Sir, I'm going to do this slowly because there is a." Weapon in my glove box. He's like, that's fine. So I just very hand here, very easily. And I didn't know. I mean, I don't know if y'all are like me, man. You've got like, I mean, rappers from 1999, Taco Bell. I mean, it's just, it's a mess in there. So I get all that stuff and, you know, in my lap, guns there, I'm here. We're friends. So anyway, he, uh, he told me that I had a light out. And five hours later, when my heart rate normalized somewhat, I said, you know, isn't that the case when it comes to suffering and evil often? We're looking out at the world saying, why is everything so dark? When Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Do men light a candle? And then put it under a bushel? No. He says they put it on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Notice Jesus is not surprised at a dark world. But He says that tragedies will come in this fallen sinful world. And secondly, so we have to understand first, everybody here, we've got to understand, bad things will happen. And if you believe the Bible like I do, that the return of Jesus is imminent, this may not be very encouraging, but I, I, I believe this is what the Bible teaches, that it's going to get worse, okay? It's going to get worse the closer it gets to the return of Jesus. And I think just in American society, we see that. We see, and I don't have to illustrate that for you, the rise of paganism and secularism within our schools. We have students even in, in, in gospel churches who will come through and support things uh, like abortion, support things like uh, euthanasia, all sorts of anti-Christian to the core things. People my age, this is a huge deal in our generation. We have lost our moorings in God's Word. And I think it is part of that s- social decline and that slide into cultural hell. But it is a time for those of us who God has saved to stand firm. Amen, church? I don't know about you, but whenever things get rough and they get tough, I believe that God has given us a certain measure of fight. Not of rudeness, not of pride, of arrogance, but of, okay, alright, let's do this. And you find the picture. We did a whole series, a six or seven week series on the warrior in Ephesians chapter 6. And it says to, to plant your feet and be ready, having done everything to stand in the evil day. We live in an evil day. Jesus was giving this address in an evil day. There will be evil days to come, but my faith is in Jesus. Amen? Jesus who's able to take my evil away and to cleanse me and to use me in such a way that it benefits the world. Second way that you prepare is you resist, especially for our Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers. We have to resist 
the urge to give the why about why tragedy happens. In other words, avoid surface solutions. Notice that Jesus destroys this notion of God is picking certain people to judge them above and beyond. Now notice here, Jesus' point is that you don't know. Do you remember Job's friends? And we're going to talk about Job in about two or three weeks. Job's friends were such that in his lowest moment, they basically came and said, Job, we know why God is doing this. It's because you've sinned. May God have mercy upon you. But if someone you know has a tragedy happen and you show up and play the Pharisee, may God have mercy on your soul because you don't know why. You don't. It's quiet in here. Let me say it again. You don't know why that person's child died before it was born. You don't know why that person got cancer. You don't know what God is doing. What you have to do is to understand that... Ultimately, pain is a way for us to look at the one who can relieve all pain and it's a place and a time for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus to give comfort. Not to try to come in and be the Pharisee. And notice notice Jesus, how politically correct He is. Don't y'all love how politically correct Jesus is? As in zero. Notice how He addresses this. He basically says, y'all are guilty just like the ones who died. In other words, Jesus destroys the notion of there are good people. Um, C.S. Lewis says this. The idea of universal human sin is so foreign because the modern mind no longer believes in sin. Now, if you were back with Jesus, you would have had probably certain things in your mind, such as the way that the people addressed the man who had been born blind in John chapter 9. Do you remember that man? He was... He was born blind and people said, well, is he born blind because he did something wrong before he was born? Or did his parents do something wrong and God is punishing them? How do you do something wrong in the womb? There's not even the mental faculties developed yet to make that kind of decision. But yet people did what sometimes we do. We say things like parents shouldn't have to bury their children. And we act surprised sometimes when those things happen. Do y'all realize how sick and marred and fractured the world really is? Do you realize that we don't have any guarantee that we're not all going to be burying some parts of us tomorrow? We don't have any guarantee that... Parents will be buried by children or that brother brothers will bury younger brothers. We don't have that because the world is sick and sinful. And Jesus gets to the heart of it by saying, you're all guilty and if you don't repent, you will all go to hell. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying, oh, hold on, Jeff. Are you telling me that God never sends judgment as a way to, uh, to, uh, of punishment? No. Because the Bible gives several situations. One will be Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, if you want to write down notes. God gave that judgment as a judgment. Also, the Great Tribulation in Acts, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20 and 21. The Bible tells us two times, and they did not repent. And they did not repent. Do y'all realize that the seven Years of tribulation is not so much God's wrath, but it's actually God's mercy. Here's a big question for those of you thinkers. 
Why should God give the world seven more years? Why should God give the world one more second? It is God's mercy through that that He's giving the world time to repent. Another situation in the Bible to where God did uh, pour out judgment would be on Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. God struck them dead. And the Bible says that fear fell upon all of the congregation. You say, now Jeff, are you telling us... It seems like you're telling us two different things. I'm confused. One is that God sends uh, tragedy, but on the other one, it's just a judgment. Here's the thing. It's very easy. One thing that you and I can understand and grasp a hold of is that when tragedy comes, it should point us to Jesus. It should not cause us to try to figure out who God is trying to single out because you don't know and neither do I. Say, well, Jeff, how should we respond? Is there a proper way? You've given us two ways to not respond to tragedy. How should we respond? Tragedy should point us to Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus gives this little parable of of the the man who had planted a fig tree. How many of y'all have ever had figs? Okay. Fig Newtons? Alright, okay. Um, if you have never, this, this may, this may, you're like, he's on one of his weird health kicks. No. If you've never had figs, I encourage you to go fig out. I worked like an hour on that one. So. You can go fig out at, at Kroger. Just, just go buy some. They're great. They're great for you. They were used uh, very heavily in the, in the, in the, the area Jesus was, the, the Mideast and Palestine. But the fig tree was also a symbol of Israel. Kind of like we have the eagle. That's a symbol of the United States of America. They would have understood that Jesus was talking about them. Now, this is for you Old Testament scholars. And this also for some of you students that have questions about how Christianity relates to care of the environment. It's in the book of Leviticus, but it says that when a fruit tree is planted, you are not to take the fruit until it's been there for three Years to give it time to properly develop. Very, very interesting. It also talks in the Old Testament about allowing your fields to rest on the seventh year so that it can replenish it and you won't have to uh, dump uh, chemicals on it that eventually gets into the food, which is what we experience here often in America today. Very interesting ecological insights of the Old Testament. But now notice here, this, this is so cool. This is in a Hebrew context. It would have been planted three years. Well, he's waited how many years? Three. After the first three. So it's coming up on the seventh year. The number of completion. The number of perfection. And the guy who planted the tree was simply saying, I planted the fig tree to get what? Help me out. Figs. You plant apple trees to get... Apples, and this is so detailed and difficult, isn't it? Right? And you guys are like, hold, hold on, hold on, Jeff, somebody back there, hold on. Alright? So that's the reason why, but he's coming and there is no fruit that has been produced at all. And he says, let's cut it down. But the one who actually worked with the trees, the vine dresser said, Sir, let it alone this year also. Let me, let me uh, dig around it, put fertilizer, and then if it doesn't give fruit, then cut it down. Do you realize the reason why every single... If, you, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, and let, let me explain that briefly. If you know if you died right now that you would be in big, serious trouble, 
If you know if you died right now and you stood before God, there is no way He would let you into heaven. You know what you have done with whoever it may. Your life would not match with what God requires, which is perfection. The reason why you are alive right now is because you are the tree and God is giving you the fertilizer of the Gospel to give you one more chance to get saved. That's it. Judgment is coming. There is an axe called death. Call it the judgment of God. Call it meeting our Maker. I'm not going to do that because every time I come to this side of the stage, y'all start putting stuff in your purses. That's not, it's not go time yet. All right. Maybe I've given off a, a, a clue somehow. I'm going to stay right here because we are not done. But seriously, according to Jesus, if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, and that is evidenced by your life being changed, then once you get saved, you follow Christ in believer's baptism. This does not say this is a, this is a statement about what God has already done in your heart. Then you get plugged into a local church. You begin to read your Bible. You begin to give to the work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, by the way, listen, I'm, I'm not selling Amway. I'm not a salesman for anything. That's why I never feel awkward about asking you guys to give to the gospel. Because it's something worth giving to. You see, that's a result of a changed heart. If that is not evident in your life, you are the tree and God is giving you one more time, one more chance, one more day to get saved. See, Jeff, I've been saved. What's what's the takeaway for me? I've had I've had I've had loved ones die, quote unquote, early. What is the takeaway for me? Christian, we have to be very careful because we will end up being bitter at God. Like this. God, my child died when they were a child. They died before they were able to have a family of their own. I was divorced when I was faithful. I lost my job when I bent over backwards to take one for the company time and time again. God, I never asked to be abused. I never signed up for the family that I was given. What does all this mean for me? In regards to losing someone that you love dearly, you have to understand this. That the time that God allowed you to have with them was His mercy. Just because they passed away before they became old and gray does not mean that God stole what you deserved. Like my brother who died before... When he was 20, it's very easy for me to feel robbed. But then to step back and to say, Lord, those were 20 years of a gift that I never deserved. God, thank You for those 20 years instead of being bitter for the 60 or 50 or, or 70 or 90 that I think that I deserve that I didn't get. It will, Christian, it will set you free. I'm telling you, it will set you free when you thank God for the gift that you were able to enjoy instead of harboring bitterness about the time that you think that you didn't. You say, Jeff, now, now I'm one of the, per, the people that you mentioned who, who was in that rough situation, that rough life, that brutal family. What, 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 does, this, what it, does this mean for me? 
Do you realize that if you have grown up in a broken family, if you have been sinned against so many times by so many different people, do you realize that the world is full of people who have had similar things happen? you all realize that? And God in His grace and His mercy has brought you here today to hear how you can be set free. And it's simply this. Say, God, I don't know why so many of these things have happened to me, but I know that You love me because You died for me on the cross. And I believe, God, that You can take away my baggage. You can take away the hurt and the pain in my life. But God... Help me. Do you realize that the power of Jesus Christ can set you free? And not only that, not can He just heal what has been fractured and broken, but He can raise you up. Y'all, please track with me on this. He can raise you up to be an example through your pain and your suffering that you can say, yes, this was me. Yes, this happened to me. I did these things, but here's what God's grace has done in my life. He can raise you up. Not as some type of doomsday prepper, but as a person who says, my preparation is based only on the fact that I take my life, I take my finances and say, God, I can't. I can't. I can't. I, Americans, this is so hard. I can't save myself. You bow your knee in humility in your heart and you say, Jesus, please save me. What happens is that fertilizer of the gospel has taken root in your heart. And God is doing such a work in your heart right now that you believe that today is the day that you need to give it to Him. And some of you Christians, you need to release the bitterness that you have towards God and let that transform into joy for the time that you had so that you can be a witness to the other people who have been so brutally wounded by life.